I'm Russ Boris, and this is 8-Track. Our guest today played Major League Baseball for 13 years, most notably with the New York Mets and Oakland A's. During the baseball season these days, you can regularly catch him on SNY as an analyst for those same Mets, as well as national games with TBS. Happy to welcome Ron Darling to the show. Hello. Hello, Russ. Thanks for having me. I was just thinking with this lockout, I've got to find a different avenue. Uh, to be able to use whatever talents I have on air. So uh, thanks for interviewing me for maybe a future position. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to uh, to put you uh, under the employ of WFUV as DJ today. So thank you so much for that. Uh, so 8-Track is a little something we do where we talk about eight particular songs and, and how those affected you or, or why that playlist came together. For you, uh, this seems very simple. It says, I have a story for each song. So I'll be curious about these stories. And we start out with a pretty uh, landmark riff, Smoke on the Water and Deep Purple. So talk to me about Deep Purple. Well, um, first, uh, how I came to my list is that I have three younger brothers and I was in the family that when 10-speed bicycles became the norm, my family bought the banana seat bicycle. So uh, <laughs> when cassettes became the thing, my dad and mom for Christmas, right before they hit, bought us the 8-track. So the 8-track right. was the most important uh, thing in my house. So I asked my three younger brothers about the songs they remember us playing uh, through that time. And of all of those, Smoke on the Water uh, was the one that came true. Uh, as far as Deep Purple is concerned, it was a band I loved. Uh, Smoke in the Water is not even my favorite song. I, I like Hush and the drum solo and the mule, I think, is, uh, is one of my favorites. I used to go summer in Burlington, Vermont. And um, when I would visit a family there that grew up in Hawaii, their son, Babe, and he was no Babe, he was the biggest kid I'd ever seen at 10 years old, uh, started to teach me the drums. And when he played Smoke on the Water, it was the first time that I ever took the sticks to the drums and he taught me the hi-hat. And I'll remember that as long as I live. So I'm trying to picture a very young Ron Darling on the drums. <laughs> I, w I was about eight years old, and I, I, I didn't realize it until you just played it there, but how wonderfully that song kind of folds in, you know, with the drums and, and with the bass, and of course with the great guitar riff. Boy, it brings back memories, yeah. So you mentioned your younger brothers, you know, being the music association right there with them. Was that how music all came together for you in your house? Or did you have other other family members that turned you on to stuff? You know, uh, my mother is only uh, 17 years older than me. So I grew up with a lot of Motown. Um, you know, she was a young girl even when I was, you know, going to first grade or whatever. So I grew up with a lot of music from her. I grew up with a lot of country and Western music from my father who was stationed in Texas at some point. So my likes are very eclectic, although this list is not as eclectic. But um, I know for my brothers, uh, all of us, well, I shouldn't say that. I was probably the guy that couldn't wait to move out and do something else, uh, move away from the town I grew up in. And it was through reading, I'm a voracious reader, and through music, you know. Um, I, when I first heard this song, Smoke in the Water, I remember having to figure out how to spell mantra 
because I didn't know where that was. Um, right. And it's E-A-U-X, right, at the end. And somehow figuring it out and finding out where that place was. Uh, those are the kind of things that fascinated me at eight, nine, ten years old. Now, you mentioned earlier getting a lot of 8-tracks. Did you at some point in time start doing, you know, going to record stores and shopping on your own? Uh, yeah, we, um, we, sh- we shopped all the time, like every weekend. Uh, my brothers and I would take the bus to Worcester, Mass. Uh, we live in a town just outside. And uh, there were a couple of little stores there. But, you know, at that point, they were a little too dear for us. So we would take uh, exchange stuff, you know, 10 baseball cards for an 8-track that someone was sick of. Uh, we did whatever we could to try to get the pile of eight tracks uh so we had enough in uh in every room of the house you know i've done a lot of trading of cards but not <laughs> yeah. for other th- other items necessarily that's interesting we had a, a wiffle ball game in my backyard that was very exclusive because you had to play at a certain level all my brothers were amazing athletes all played collegiate baseball have one brother played the yankees farm system and you're only allowed to get in the game if you could play at a certain level, unless you could donate an eight track, uh, then you were uh, allowed in the game every single time. <laughs> you, could, you could bribe your way in. That's, that's right. What a horrible. You had to grease the right palm. Got it. What horrible kids we were. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Song two on your playlist here, Ron, is, uh, I mean, for the time frame that you're growing up and, you know, the, the, the themes that you'd be talking about, the fact that we had Stevie Wonder in here makes perfect sense to me. So yeah. uh, why, you know, for a guy that you could pick a hundred songs, why is it Sir Duke? Uh, it's funny, yeah. It's, uh, you know, songs in the keys of life uh, when I was a certain age was everything. I mean, every song on that A-track resonated with me anyways. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, my mom's Hawaiian Chinese, my dad's Finnish. Um, so I always was the unusual looking person. So I always um, had a great affination for Stevie Wonder. And why I chose Duke is that my brothers and I played uh, that A-track so much that summer when it first came out that my mom got a guinea pig and named it Sir Duke after uh, that A-track because we played it so often she thought that was a good choice. How, um, how long did Sir Duke hang around? Sir, well, this is the bad part of the story. Sir Duke hung around for about six months until we found out my mom was completely allergic to the guinea pig and almost lost her life because of the guinea pig. That's how oh my gosh. that's how allergic she was to it. So um, I'm only thinking of good memories, and that was that uh, she <laughs> thought Sir Duke was a a great name for this little uh, this little beautiful pet. Killer choice. I mean, it doesn't get more brilliant than Stevie Wonder. So, thank you for that. Wow. I mean, you know, you know, it's interesting. And, and picking this music, you know, I think that someone from my time, you know, you can go back in the vault and pick, I guess, all of the hits and all of the things that are going to make you uh, seem like a a real historian about music. But music's so personal, you know. And I thought 
um, when we did this that it'd be fun just to talk about uh, growing up with the songs and what they mean to you, you know? Well, what is really more nostalgic than music? I mean, it, it just gives you such clear pictures of snapshots of your life in, in any respect. I mean, it, it can point you to places, it can point you to experiences, it points you to people. You know, when when uh, being a, an athlete, former athlete, you know, you're always around musicians. Musicians want to be ball players, and ball players want to be musicians. Why? Well, if you end up being a ball player, it's probably because you don't have or many of us don't have that beautiful, creative, artistic gene uh, that these uh, wonderful, creative people possess. And you're jealous of that. You want it all, you know? And um, so that's that's where the admiration comes from, from uh, an athlete's uh, side of the road. It's, it's actually very funny that you mentioned that exact point, because I was thinking in my head that, in essence, like, you know, sports figures can be rock stars at their height of the fame and, and level of success. But it does go the reverse and you could see, you know, when they interact, you see public figures together and you see the, the sports figure with the musician. And you're like, they just kind of want to be in each other's shoes in some respects. <laughs> and it's amazing to me that you brought up that exact point. That's right. It's crazy. Well played. All right. So we have a choice here from the stylistics and you make me feel brand new. Tell me the story on this one. Okay, well, um, I, again, I, I said before that my mom was only 17 years older than I am. So uh, she was a Motown fan and it was sitting around our house all the time, playing in our house all the time. She was dancing either with my father or dancing by herself, just loved all of those bands. And uh, the reason I picked this song is because um, all of us have those five, six, seven, a hundred embarrassing moments of their childhood. And uh, the first time that I ended up having a real girlfriend and trying to form a relationship, I don't know how old I was, I don't know when the song came out or whatever, but um, I ended up having, you know, one of those steamy conversations that you have with a new girlfriend and you're so in like or love or whatever it is um, that I didn't hang up the phone completely. And in those days, now no one who is not my age is going to understand what I'm talking about. But there were phones that if you did not hang them up, they would keep an open line to the person that you just talked to. So, of course, I put in the A track of You Make Me Feel Brand New. And if, when you listen to the song, if you don't know it, you'll realize how embarrassing it was uh, to be singing along with the stylistics with an open phone to your new girlfriend. Only feels like we need to uncover a few more details here okay, first of all sure. i don't think i'll i'll ever i'm never gonna hear that song the same without <laughs> thinking like 13 year old ron darling like singing it, um, it you know swaying around the room i, I mean um, you, okay. you you think about it maybe uh, the lower part of the song i might have had a chance to pull off but once russell, russell Tompkins jr hits 
there's no chance. And I can just imagine what it must have sounded like a couple miles away while they're making their spaghetti that night. But, you know, I always thought, you know, I, I remember when Boys to Men hit it really big and they said that they were from Philadelphia. And my first thought when that wonderful band or, or trio started making their way, I think there are three guys, might be four. Um, I think it was four in the beginning. Yeah, four, yeah. four. When they started making their way, when I found out they were from Philly, um, I was like, God, if I only knew those guys, I want to ask how much influence the other Philadelphia band, the Stylistics, had on what they did because uh, the Stylistics were money there for a long time. All right, so you, you're belting this out and you're doing it in, in whatever, like, you know, teenage <laughs> way you possibly can. <laughs> yeah. So what actually happened with the girlfriend at that point? I ended up, uh, we, we ended up being boyfriend, girlfriend for a long, long time. So the singing must not have been that bad. Uh, but I, I do remember, you know, those embarrassing moments when you're a kid that when I found out, because um, I, I lived in a small town, her father drove over to our house to inform my parents that I had left the phone off the hook and he needed to put it <laughs> on the hook because he couldn't make business calls or whatever calls he had to make. So that's when my parents came in the room and I said, listen, you didn't put the phone back on the hook. Can you put it on the back of the hook? I said, what? And that's when I realized the whole thing had transpired. And um, I'm pretty brown as a person, but I got pretty red, I'm sure, in those days. So. <laughs> So we're going to move to the next pick, and I, I think we could certainly have a lot of conversation here sure. because you went, you know, Wings era McCartney. Late at night when the wind is still, I'll come flying through your door. And you'll know what love is for. I'm a bluebird. I'm a bluebird. I'm a bluebird. I'm a bluebird. Were you a big Beatles fan growing up? I was a huge uh, a Beatles fan, of course. You know, their real early stuff, um, Too Young. Rubber Soul was the first album that just totally hooked me. Uh, I remember missing most of French uh, that year because of Rubber Soul. I don't know, it just uh, that class. It was at the end of the day, I couldn't wait to get out to listen to that album over and over and over again. Um, why McCartney and, and uh, you know, I know he had maybe a record or two um, after he left the Beatles with Wings, but it wasn't really till Band on the Run for me that that was his official, okay, he's past it enough, past his breakup enough uh, to do some original or his stuff. And uh, the reason I picked Bluebird, because you know, I was just thinking about the other bird uh, that they sang about. And when I was a, a kid, I had a really good friend who was a Native American uh, friend. And um, we all always used to look at birds. It was one of the things we used to go in the woods. He was so great at picking out birds. And he always said that the bluebird symbolized renewal. That's what his dad had told him. And uh, when I heard this song, that's all I could ever think about when the song came out. And I remember people telling me, you know, what the song was about and this and that. And it's like, don't tell me, don't tell me, because it means renewal for me forever. So that's why I picked up. Bluebird, 
a really interesting pick because you spend a lot of time there hearing all the percussive elements that kind of sound like birds. Yeah. And then out of nowhere, when the sax comes in, you get thrown for like a complete loop. Uh, I ended up uh, meeting the saxophone player. Someone introduced him to me years later. Um, Howie Casey, I think, was his name. But uh, what, what I remember about Bluebird later in life is that you're so right with that calypso, with that sounds of birds. It reminded me so much later in my life when I used to vacation in Jamaica. All alone on a desert island We're living in the trees And we're flying in the breeze I always felt like Bluebird seemed to be the aura around you at all times when you're uh, enjoying yourself in that lovely island. You know, I like everyone else, I, I, I think we're all riveted to write the uh, Peter Jackson documentary. I don't know if you've all seen it, but uh, just uh, am amazing stuff to watch and, and to see uh, McCartney what was he, 26 years old during the filming of that? Yeah, it's it's pretty unbelievable um, to see them at the age that they are and, you know, to really see how completely invested he is in trying to keep everything together at that point. Like, it's falling apart and he knows it's falling apart, but he's still fighting it and trying to just will them all together. Yeah, which, which ends up to a lot of them, to me watching it, uh, then he ends up being the bossy one. And yeah. um, I guess we used to think that way about uh, Gary Carter when we played. It's like, he's very bossy, but you know what? He was just very adult and <laughs> we weren't, so. There's something to be said about that though. There needs to be somebody who's like, hey, uh, you know, guys, I get what's happening here, but like, we still have a goal. You got, somebody has to keep you on track. That's right. And, uh, you know, just watching that documentary, I think just, um, you know, genius comes in many different forms. And uh, the ability at one point to not have a song and 90 seconds later having an iconic song that we all know is, is just beyond me. I just don't understand people who can do that. Yeah, there's a level of creativity that we're not privy to because it's just not it's not how our brains work. It's not how we're wired in the <laughs> same right, way. That's right. But you're totally right on because I think there was that one moment where... Paul is explaining something to George, like, I want you to do this. And George is sort of saying, like, well, I'm not very good at that. Like, like Clapton does that, but yeah. I don't do that. And I think what Paul didn't understand at the time was, like, George is a genius, too. That's right. But he has to work at it harder than you do. Like, for Paul, it just seemed to be more natural. George had to work hard. Yeah, I think George had to. It seemed to me like um, Paul and John seemed to have so many, uh, the ability to pull all of their life experiences out very quickly and, and get them on the page. For George, um, like most of us, a lot of those things are hidden and latent and it takes a while for them to ruminate and emerge. And uh, But when they do, um, all of us have seen uh, or listened to how great George was, is. Well, I'm curious, you know, for you personally, you're, you're, you're going to Yale was being the baseball player was major league baseball was that always the goal was that always where you were focused yeah not really I, in fact i was uh first uh looked at by yale as an athlete now uh, the student part of it was not easy but the student part of it for me was uh, you know i had all the grades and all the sat scores and all those kind of things you're supposed to have to go to an ivy league school but they wanted me as a football player first and foremost 
uh, baseball player was secondary. Um, and I loved football, but uh, uh, when I got to Yale between my freshman and sophomore year, I grew six inches. So everything I had done on the high school level um, had been very good, uh, but with six inches of muscle, six inches of height, uh, exponentially all those um, talents got better. And it didn't translate as well into football as it did in baseball. So it was just uh, total luck. So I, I mean, no, I, I didn't think that was going to happen. I was going to do what everyone else does at Yale. I was going to go to law school or business school and somehow run a business. But uh, 16 years later, I was still throwing the ball around. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll pause that. We'll go back to that because we definitely, uh, you know, there's there's more story to be had there. Sure. Uh, but I definitely wanted to hear about your story around Phoebe Snow's poetry man. Well, you know, uh, we were just talking about athletes, and I think this is one of the first songs I remember as a as a kid, thinking that um, Phoebe Snow is a all star, Hall of Fame athlete. Like listening to her voice. No one could sing like that. It wasn't until I think maybe, I mean, I know people have voices like that. I, I, I don't know the history of music well enough, but I know Mariah Carey had the same effect on me when she first uh, became popular, that her range of her voice was something that was so physical and, and, you know, that's just a gift from the gods. And I felt the same way about Phoebe when this song came out. You of us that are, are young and feeling a little awkward and maybe have spots on your face and you don't think you're going to be uh, the cat's meow to girls and whatever. Uh, I remember this song to me meant, and I, I know in retrospect and reading the history of the song, that's a different meaning for, for Phoebe Snow, but I remember uh, listening to this and not it was not only the physicality of the way she was able to sing the song, but uh, I was thinking that a man with words, not his looks, a man with words uh, could still um, sweep a girl off her feet. When I am with you, I have a giggling teenage crush that now a sultry It's a track with Ron Darling, Phoebe Snow, and Poetry Man. Another great choice uh, for your theme of I have a story for each song. And we're going to get to the next story in a second uh, for sure, which I'm really interested about this next pick. Um, I wanted to, to go back as we were talking about uh, you know, going to Yale and becoming an athlete. Um, so as you're breaking into the business of baseball... How does music come into play there um, in the clubhouse? You know, who controls the music in the clubhouse? Well, once I got the professional ball, it changed. Certainly uh, the, the starting pitcher controls the music of the day. So that's why when you come to the ballpark, sometimes you'll have country and Western one day to reggaeton uh, playing another day, all kinds of different music. So eclectic. I used to be the uh, DJ when I was on the Mets uh, in the back of the planes. And I used to have this big boom box and uh, everyone would bring their um, cassette or 
uh, bring their disc back there. I had two seats in the back. They'd all leave it in one seat. And all I had to do to be a successful DJ is at least play all those songs at one point. And if you did play it, you'd, you'd see a number of guys who are from Texas and Oklahoma running back uh, to hear something from Garth Brooks. And then if you played something that was uh, just coming out in the late 80s, uh, West Coast rap, uh, you'd hear Strawberry and, and Gooden would come sprinting back to listen to that. So uh, it was a great time to listen to music. But as far as uh, sports at Yale, it was really the students at Yale uh, is where you start to really learn a lot uh, about music. I had never listened to the Beach Boys. Um, I'm sure I heard music by the Beach Boys, but I'd never listened to the Beach Boys, never listened to Brian Wilson uh, and his greatness. Um, I never listened to punk rock until I got to Yale and all the New York kids were dead set with it and playing it out of every window on freshman campus. So it was a total uh, music epiphany when I got to college. Right. There's a whole other awakening there. Yeah. Um, at that point in time, had you experienced your first concert yet? I had. Yeah, I, I saw a, a lot of concerts, especially uh, when I was young. Uh, there were a lot of little venues in Massachusetts where you could see a combination of, of concerts, comics and concerts. Uh, I saw comics at uh, Chinese restaurants. I mean, it, it was just a very strange uh, thing brewing where people could not get enough of, of funny guys, funny gals, and could not get enough of live music when I was a kid. And just uh, like all of us in the day, uh, sneaking in was, was the issue. Um, but um, 18 helped in those days as opposed to 21 today. How bad a gig is doing stand-up at a Chinese restaurant? Oh, listen, when you look up any Massachusetts comic, I forget the name of the uh, Chinese restaurant in Boston, but all of them went through there because the owner of the place loved comics, loved to laugh, and he would uh, do what he had to do to feed his patrons. And then as soon as they were fed at the end of the night, that's when the, uh, the comedy would start. And um, I wouldn't say I went to that place uh, very often, but I know a lot of my older friends or brothers of my uh, friends would uh, go there all the time. Gotcha. Okay. So it was kind of a combination thing because I'm just picturing like walking in and like, you know, it's one thing to ask for like, you know, lo mein with a side of Dennis Leary or something <laughs> like that. That's a, that's right. I mean, I, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure that uh, Stephen Wright in those days was huge. So Stephen Wright sure. would have uh, would have some good play on words for Chinese food and and his strengths. So That's actually unbelievable. Thank you for that story. <laughs> I'm very pleased with that. All right, now, speaking of stories, you say that there is a story for each song here, yeah. so what is the one behind Folsom Prison Blues? Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear the train coming it's rolling around a bend. You know, I, I said before that my mom was a big uh, Motown fan, but my dad bought us because uh, he wanted to sway us to a little country and western. He was in love with Johnny Cash and Johnny Cash's music. We used to see Johnny Cash on Sonny and Cher show or Hee Haw or whatever it was on, and I didn't think he was too menacing until I heard this song. And Folsom Prison Blues, the line where he shot a man in Reno just to watch him die, I'll never forget that lyric. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, 
I hang my head and cry. That was the first time I had ever listened to an album which scared me. Um, to have that ability to write a, a line and a song that not only scares you, but the, I don't know the exact words coming out of that, but um, he wanted to hold his head and cry, right? After that shame of killing a man in Reno. Um, I didn't know it at the time, but Johnny Cash was gangster, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, in his time. I bet there's rich folks eating from a fancy dining car. They're probably drinking coffee and smoking big cigars. Well, I know I had it coming. I know I can't be free. And um, I just remember this song. When, when we would play it, my brothers and I would semi-laugh, semi-shocked, semi-a little afraid. Uh, anytime that lyric is played. Because there's an authenticity there that feels like this guy might be serious. Like, I, I don't, like, I'm believing this. You know, we used to always hear uh, of certain musical artists that had spent time in prison. And, you know, I don't know if this was fostered by his uh, music company or whatever it was, but, you know, he did play at Folsom Prison. He did go and perform for the guys incarcerated. And, you know, it became like real life that this guy must have went to prison or did some stuff wrong because no one can write that without having that kind of something inside you. And I'd let that lonesome whistle blow my blues away. You can call it iconic, you can call it gangster if you like, <laughs> anything you like. It, it, it all works. Just brilliant. Just uh, just hearing uh, the men incarcerated and the cheering, not only for the song and the, and the words, I'm sure, but also to have someone of, of Johnny Cash's might uh, take the time out to spend an afternoon uh, with folks who felt like no one wanted to spend an afternoon with them was uh, pretty eye-opening. Yeah, I mean, you could take a positive look on that and think that, you know, there's guys who can feel like, all right, maybe I could turn my life around because if you're somebody who cares about me. That's right. You know, if yeah. you're seeing guys who are trying to rehabilitate themselves. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's powerful. Super powerful. All right, so we've gone a lot of different directions in terms of your background. Sure. Um, one thing I wanted to kind of fast forward to is, you know, your Major League Baseball career ends. Um, at what point in time do you start thinking about Broadcasting Is that a conscious effort? Is somebody just bring it up and you kind of think, oh, I'll give it a shot? Like, how does that direction evolve? Well, it's funny. I'm always haunted by uh, this tape conversation I had with Tim Carver one time where he asked me, uh, at any point, do you think you'd be a broadcaster? I said, are you kidding me, Tim? I will never be a broadcaster. So um, I will tell you, uh, on the Saturday and Sundays when I did not pitch at Chase Stadium, I used to put that headset on and they'd always keep a headset near the dugout because they would interview players before the game. They'd always be a back and forth. And I could hear the announcers and to hear Ralph Kiner and Tim McCarver and others uh, talking through the game. I just loved it. You know, it broke up the uh, the humdrum of playing 162 games and maybe by, um, I don't know, some transitory powers that Tim and, and Ralph had. Uh, I used to love listening to them. And I know that when I finally started working with the Mets and getting to work with Ralph Kiner, um, on day games, he would come in at 11 o'clock on the nose and I would make sure I had all my work done for the game because from 11 to 12, Ralph would teach you about the history of baseball in the 50s and the 60s. It was the most remarkable thing. And you'd hear story after story. And um, he was a great man, great storyteller. 
and uh, uh, I miss him. I really do. That's where you, you start to to figure out how you're gonna, you know, kind of pepper in, you know, some other comments in the game that could really add. You know, it's one thing to be the color guy, yeah. uh, but it's another thing to be the analyst. Um, so you kind of felt yourself more naturally gravitating towards that direction. Yeah, I, I, I think. Um... I don't know. It's a very uh, unique thing to do. You know, everyone does it different. Uh, you know, if you look on the football side, no one's more popular than Tony Romo, and and he does it with a real um, first guessing uh, way of, of of putting the game and and saying what's going to happen, um, and being very great at it. Um, you know, I work with Keith Hernandez, and Keith does it just with. There's no one like him. He's the, one of the most unique individuals I've ever met in my life. So the things that come out of his mouth would never come out of anyone's mouth. I mean, he's a he's a unicorn when it comes to that kind of stuff. And then, um, you know, I do what I do. I I, I don't know what it is. Um, I just I, I do have a passion and love for it, and hopefully that comes out. I'll give you the snapshot. I'll give you, you know, there was a game years ago, probably one of the early broadcasts you probably had done in SNY, and you were talking about Dontrell Willis, and he had had a number of, um, you know, rough starts where, you know, things had kind of changed for him um, that people couldn't figure out, like, this guy came up and he was a fireballer and he was striking everybody out and he was just... And the moment where I realized Ron's amazing at this was when you said, well, that was when he was a little bit younger, and he's grown a little bit more into his body, and he has a lot in terms of his mechanics and his motion. You know, there's like arms and legs, and everything is all out of sync now because he's just a bigger human being than he was when he first came up. And as I watched it, and I thought, that makes total sense. I would have never thought of that. Ronnie's really good at this job, <laughs> and I'm glad he's on the broadcast. Well, you know, um, none of this stuff comes out of the air. Um, and it's the same with music, huh? We're talking about music, and and all of these things come from somewhere else. Uh, very rare is someone so unique that they can come up with it all by themselves. How did I come to the Dontrell stuff? Because I watched Dwight Gooden go through it. I remember Dwight Gooden when he was 19 years old. He was shorter than I was. He was probably 15 pounds lighter than I was. And at some point, I'm playing with that same person who started at 19 years old, and now he's 23, 24 years old. He's taller than me, and now he's about 15, 20 pounds heavier than me. So all that beautiful um, poetry and motion that Dwight used to show on the on the mound, um, it would be like taking Nureyev or Gudinov and putting on 25 pounds and say, okay, now do Swan Lake, try that. It's uh, very difficult. It's interesting. Um, all right, so you're talking about you know being sort of unique and and doing things your own way. Uh, we're going Boston here, yeah, and we've got riff, we've got tremendous riffage. <laughs> that is that is uh, you know again speaking of iconic. Yeah. So I imagine that that has to play into the, you know why this song is chosen for you, but um, you know because you could have gotten a number of places for Aerosmith, but um, tell me about Walk This Way. Why is there a story here? Well, um, when I think of my childhood, I think of um, people from my area that became iconic. And when they became iconic for a young person, it puts you in a space where, boy, you know, they're from here. If they could do it, maybe I could do it. Uh, an example, Tony Conigliaro, for people out there who don't know, was a great ball player, home run hitter for the Red Sox. On August 18th, 1967, the impossible dream year, he was hit in the eye by Jack Hamilton. 
um, never really played the way he played ever again. My birthday is on the 19th. I remember telling my mother that uh, I did not want a birthday cake till Tony C was playing again because he was my inspiration because he was from Somerville, Mass. And if a kid from Somerville can play for the Red Sox, certainly a kid from Millbury could play in the major league someday. And I felt this way, um, funny, uh, pardon the pun, I felt this way about uh, this song because, um, I don't know, I feel like Aerosmith, when I was a kid, um, were like our stones. Like the Massachusetts people, like us guys, this is what was our stones. You know, Joe Perry was Keith, and of course, uh, Steven Tyler had all the histrionics of Mick. Um, but more importantly, it was um, one of the first concerts I remember going to. Uh, I believe it was at the Westboro Speedway, uh, which was a little dirt track for little carts. And they played right in the middle of it. And you stood on the dirt and you listened to this band play. And uh, you're like, this is a little different than anything I've listened to before. So it's amazing how that song is so, you know, closely associated with the area it's from, but also like, you know, you, you fast forward a decade later and they get the uh, the updated Rum DMC version right. and kind of turn on to a whole new league of fans. Well, I, I think it was so open-minded of them because most rock and roll groups, they have an iconic song. I don't know, they would not be reluctant, uh, but maybe a little hesitant on uh, on joining forces with uh, the force that was run DMC. But uh, it turned into uh, rebooting uh, their career, and thankfully so, because, uh, you know, uh, I'm asked all the time, you know, what books uh, do I love and autobiographies I love. And Keith Richards, I learned more about music and reading his autobiography than any. But uh, Joe Perry, uh, if you ever have a chance to read his, uh, it's just sparkling. Now, if um, if Aerosmith is the uh, the stones of the area, what is Boston? Well, Boston became the band my freshman year uh, at Yale. I don't know. I, I think you're very territorial, right, when you're in college. And as I was saying, you've learned so much from other people from different parts of the country. And they're playing the music that's dear to them, and you're opening your eyes at all times. But when a party's at your place, or in your house, or in your dorm, I know that Boston was always the band I felt most assured that not only would it keep the party going, but that it would be appreciated by the people that were there. freshman year you used to fill out this form that would place you with roommates now you know there's a whole science to it right but uh, in those days you'd, you'd fill out this form and somehow you'd end up with these uh, people that you didn't know but it was the perfect match well I didn't match with anyone and I ended up having a single I won't say what they were called at Yale uh, those singles uh, because it's not an appropriate term 
But uh, I, I ended up on the fifth floor of this walk-up with other, I don't know, misfit toys. And um, whenever we would uh, get together or hang out, uh, Boston was always uh, the group I played. The entire album uh, is amazing to listen to. And this song always was a big hit. Well, thank you again, Ron. We do appreciate it. Thanks so Russ, much. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks to the listeners for putting up with the with an old band listening to stuff from the 70s. I was going to dive into a book, but I, I think the record player is going to go on tonight. Rock and roll band from Boston. Looking back and turning up some memories with Ron Darling on 8-Track. Big thanks again to Ron for the time. On deck for next week's 8-Track, guitarist and Cubs fan Tom Morello. 8-Track is engineered by Jim O'Hara and produced by Sarah Wardrop with theme music by Caroline Rose. Subscribe, listen, and learn more at 8trackpod.com. I'm Russ Boris for WFUV in New York.